Velkommen, bienvenue, velkommen, fremte, etrange, strange. So you've appropriately got a beer in front of you there, there uh, indicating that we're at different stages of the day. And not only because we're of uh, different temperaments, but because we're in different time zones. Although I do plan to start drinking earlier when we record in person as well. Uh, welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, welcome back, everyone. Uh, this is the first of what are going to be quite a few uh, transatlantic uh, recordings. Uh, Will is in our uh, Berlin Gore Lieberman studios, and I'm back in uh, home base in Toronto. But uh, Will, tell the listeners, uh, where are you? What are you, what are you doing? For those who... Uh, uh, you know, don't uh, follow your every move on Twitter. Where of uh, where are we finding you today? Um, hang on, just a minute. What neighborhood are we in again? Kreuzberg. <laughs> Kreuzberg. Well, I am in the Kreuzberg neighborhood of Berlin, and because I had to just shout off to remember uh, what neighborhood I was in, that'll tell you all that I know about Berlin, which is very little, but I hope to be learning more in the coming weeks. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to be in Europe uh, until December, so not too long, but long enough. And we're here because I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's always been a dream of my partners to spend enough time in a European country that was like a little bit more than a vacation, but a little bit less than actually living there. And to be completely candid with you and the listeners, Luke, I think the two of us are still not entirely over um, having spent three months taking care of a dying man last fall. So uh, this is uh, this is kind of our way to have a similar experience that's not taking care of a dying man, you know, that's kind of a kind of a nice version of being away for two and a half months. Yeah, albeit in different ways. And I mean, for very different reasons, I think both of us, you know, have had the regular rhythms of life extremely disrupted over the past, you know, six months, you know, year. Uh, and of course, all of us, including everyone listening, have, have had the regular rhythms of life disrupted by coronavirus. So I am not, uh, unfortunately, in a beautiful uh, and ancient European capital city uh, at this moment. But I am myself, uh, you know, beginning to come out anyway of just the obscene amount of work and kind of uh, just professional grind of the last, you know, six months. I mean, I think I've I have written more uh, in the past half a year than at any other point in my life. I've never had such an intense and focused period, you know, by necessity of, of this kind of work. And this this past week, uh, which, you know, I was able to tell Will about uh, before he left, he uh, he came over for a very pleasant evening. I mean... Not that uh, not that I don't always enjoy uh, your company, of course, but it's not often that Will comes over for a non-podcast related, uh, you know, like just a social evening, you know, like we... And so now let's, having done it, let's try to figure out a way that we can monetize it. What did we talk about? Let's get this yeah, on Yeah, how wax. can we commodify that? Well, what's so fun, what was so funny about it is that, you know, after Will left, you know, I made it, I did a tweet about how, you know, uh, we spent an hour talking about Mort Rifkin. And, you know, I, I think some people just thought thought that you know that was yeah me you know making content uh but no we actually did this is not you know what the conversations you hear between will and myself uh on this show are not you know i mean we're not playing characters like we actually did talk about mort rifkin for at least an hour you know talk about and around you know the idea of mort rifkin but it was a it was a very nice evening and i was able to tell will about just the absolutely exhausting week i had launching a book doing my day job doing a a book festival uh, in Toronto, 
and then uh, trying to finish a, a major part of this uh, you know massive project that I've been cryptically uh, alluding to on the show now for several months, which uh, which I did by the way uh, less than forty eight, roughly forty eight hours ago. So congratulations. Thank you. Well, not I'm not quite out of everything yet. There's still a, a little bit to do, but I'm now kind of on the precipice of being able to resume something like just a normal work schedule. I'm hoping to take some time off myself at some point soon. If you know, if people remember from last summer, I think I talked on the show about my retreat into Algonquin Park on the canoe trip that I did, and I'm hoping to do something like that again, just to unplug for a little bit. I did just want to say uh, on the uh, the book festival, this was the Toronto International Festival of Authors that I, I did on Tuesday night. I spoke on a panel there. A number of listeners, a number of people I'm sure are listening to this, came out and uh, showed up for my first book signing, which uh, was after the panel and you know, was, my I think, by far my favorite part of the evening. And I just want to say to all those people, thank you so much for coming. It was so, uh, it was so lovely to meet you. I think a few people commuted, traveled quite a distance to be there, you know, paid money for the ticket. And so I was very happy to have a few a uh, few books to give away and, and sign. It was a real uh, it was a real treasure. So thanks so much to everyone who came out. Well, before we get to our movie, or I should say our TV show for this episode, since this week was the official launch week of Luke's book, those of us who ordered it directly from his publisher, of course, got it got a month ago, two months ago, but uh, you'll be able to find it at tasteful bookstores now. Uh, since now is the official launch week, I think now might be as good a time to ask Luke a few questions about the book. Uh, I've started reading the book. I read the intro and a few chapters when I was on the plane over, and it's very good. But then I got very, uh, you know, I took a sleeping pill when I was on the plane, and it didn't actually work, but it did make me feel very disgruntled, so I couldn't focus on anything. (laughs) So after the first few chapters, I had to switch to watching Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom on the uh, (laughs) in-flight movie system. Can I interject here to ask, uh, I mean, did you choose that one... Uh, did you have the other Indiana Jones movies to choose from or, or faced with, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Last Crusade, Temple of Doom? You voluntarily opted for the third one. What what happened here? Uh, it's the second one, first of all. Shame on you. So, well, I, I mean, it's the third one in quality. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that was the only one on the in-flight entertainment system. I was in very dire straits. I was I was looking for something, something that I had seen a million times and didn't really have to focus on, but whose images would sort of keep me going. Um, and that was the one I picked. And I have to say quite ashamedly that I think Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is the Steven Spielberg movie I've seen the most. Uh, I had it on VHS growing up. I've seen it many times. was having a great time with it again on the plane. Uh, uh, I mean, just an, an evil, evil film. It's but, terrible. Uh, lot, you know, fried monkey brains and uh, snake surprise and all that. But I was having a good time with it. Uh, but listen, we're not here to talk about Indiana Jones. We're here to talk about Luke's book. I was very much enjoying in your intro, you framing the book as sort of a work by somebody who grew up at that famous phrase, the end of history. It's the book of somebody who grew up at that moment when the neoliberal consensus was hegemonic. And no matter what else you might say about the last five or six or even 10 years, uh, that consensus no longer seems quite as hegemonic as it once did. Uh, Well, it's hegemonic in certain ways, but it's no longer quite as unquestioning. I'm wondering if you could talk about how all those disparate topics that you cover in the book, and the book does cover many people and events of the last decade. Um, how did you find a way to make all of that in your mind fit under that that heading? 
the end of history? It's a good question. And I mean, the original concept for the book was not as, uh, I mean, it was not as kind of ordered or, or well organized as, as uh, you know, as this. There wasn't really a structure and conceit uh, at the very earliest stages anyway. The idea was just, you know, book of essays. And uh, I was really thinking I would just do a sort of, you know, greatest hits, <laughs> you know, greatest hits collection mm-hmm. type thing. But when I sat down to kind of uh, begin curating the essays, and, you know, I had a lot of fun just, you know, creating a big long list and then sort of trying to group them together and, and you know, seeing where different things fit or, or could fit. Uh, I found that, you know, I did actually have enough material to tell a story of some kind. And, you know, that story, I suppose, uh, you know, ended up being very much along the lines that you just laid out. I mean, there's a, kind of a loss of confidence in something or in a series of things, a series of institutions and, you know, ideological assumptions, whatever, that, as you said, in the 90s were, were hegemonic. And in a sense, um, you know, as I write in the introduction, you know, they are they are still hegemonic, but there's no longer a kind of an underlying belief that we live in the best all, of all possible worlds or that the future is just going to be a an endless continuation of the 1990s where maybe you know technology improves uh you know there's continued economic growth basically in a straight line uh more and more countries uh, adopt basically the american model of liberal capitalism and that just happens in perpetuity there are events there are political events but you know they don't really challenge or, or change or transform you know, or threaten the existing political order uh, or economic order at all and so i think the book is really trying to tell the story of you know what happens when something that was so confident and so uh, so self-assured you know the the ideological project of, of liberalism in the 1990s what happens when all of that and you know all of its narratives remain entrenched but increasingly no one really believes them anymore or fewer and fewer people believe them they don't have the kind of popular or intellectual legitimacy that they once did and so as a result you get very strange things like the 2020 democratic primaries which loom very large in the book uh, the longest section consists of these kind of character studies of various candidates you know Pete Buttigieg Amy Klobuchar people like that and all of these people Beto O'Rourke is another uh, all of them are trying to uh, as I see it reset Set liberalism, kind of kick the tires, you know, smash the reset button. They're all trying to create another Bill Clinton moment or another Barack Obama moment. They're trying to recapture that spirit, that kind of lost elan. Now, I would argue that Clinton and Obama also represented moments of great illusion as well. But illusions are very different when people believe in them. And I think that's less and less the case today. And, you know, we've seen this, I think, uh, moving into the Biden era as well, where uh, there's been a story that's been persistently told about the Biden presidency and, you know, the kind of changes it's going to bring that has never seemed very plausible to me uh, at all. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's an essay in the book that, that deals with that uh, as well. But there are also sections on the media. You know, I have some fun at the expense of uh, James Carville, the, the Cajun Clausewitz. And then the final section is all about neoliberalism. And uh, this section, I think, is an important part of the story as well, because, you know, I've done now, I don't know, I don't know how many interviews I've done around the book, but quite a few. You know, this is not a criticism of, of, of some of the interviewers, but I would say the majority have tended to focus on the parts of the book that are about sort of, you know, the, the diffidence of Democrats, their kind of, or, or liberals, their your kind of their cowardness and unwillingness to really engage in a politics of struggle or, or confrontation or, you know, do what to do ideological battle, those kinds of things. And that is an important part of the story. But the final section of the book, uh, which is on neoliberalism, deals in various ways 
with another part of this, which is that, you know, even as a lot of liberal figures today, leading liberal figures do exhibit these tendencies, you know, they are diffident, they're wary of confrontation, you know, they're constantly laboring to try to remove even the, the spectacle of, of conflict or, or, you know, ideological contestation from democratic politics. All that's true, but it's important to remember that there actually is a project at work here. Neoliberalism isn't just sort of some ethereal template against which uh, the events of the past 30 or 40 years have unfolded. It is a conscious ideological project that was begun by sort of the new right in the 1970s and and which that stage of the project crested in the 1980s, um, but then was taken up by liberals in the 1990s, coinciding with the fall of the Soviet Union and this larger idea that liberal capitalism is just just all there is now. And uh, it's going to be perfect. Every country is going to be a sort of multi-party democracy. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be like the United States multinational capitalism is going to just be triumphant forever. We've reached the end of the eschaton, you know, history's over, uh, etc. And obviously all of that, uh, you know, had profound implications and kind of created the world we're living in today. But again, it was a it was a project. And I think it's important to recognize that, you know, it, even the most, you know, diffident establishment liberals today who are not by any standards ideological fighters in the sense that you might imagine, you know, if you if you just push them a little bit, you very quickly uh, have these moments where, you know, the ideology comes right out. And that those are always a reminder that there is a project at work here. A kind of minor example that's been on my mind a lot recently, which I can't remember if we talked about it on the show. But obviously, there's been this debate about congressional stock trading. There's been a lot of reporting of late, including a big expose in the New York Times, I think the week before last about all these members of Congress trading stocks. And um, when the issue was first being kicked around a few months ago, somebody asked Nancy Pelosi about it. And um, in a perverse sort of way, I actually kind of liked the answer that she gave because uh, it wasn't the sort of mealy-mouthed equivocation that you might expect. She said something to the effect of, well, I mean, we're, this is a free enterprise, you know, free market economy. So, you know, yeah, we're, we're trading, we're trading stocks. And, and that's, you know, that, that kind of moment, it's a, it's a minor example, you know, given kind of the scale of what the book is trying to get at. But that's the kind of uh, little episode that's, you know, a reminder that there is actually an ideological crusade at work here. It's just not one that has the same uh, kind of confidence or zeal behind it that it once did. Okay, and my second and last question about the book is, of all the people thanked in the acknowledgments, who was the best? Who is the one that you think really facilitated the ideas of the book? Who is the one thanked in the acknowledgments without whom the book wouldn't exist? Uh, you're talking about my, my partner, Madeline? Uh, besides her. Uh, <laughs> and you know what? Even including her. <laughs> Will is alluding to the fact that I I did actually mention him in the uh, in the acknowledgments, and uh, I meant every word of it. You know, we did uh, tease out a lot of ideas on this show uh, that ended up you know making their way into the book in one way or the other. And uh, actually, here's a little detail that I'll share that I don't think I've actually. I don't know if I've told anybody about this, but uh, something I, I experimented with when I was trying to write the introductory essay, which in a sense uh, is kind of borrowed directly from this show, or at least would have would have come out of it, you know, somewhat directly. Is it somewhere near the beginning of coronavirus? I mean, it's been a very long few years, so I can't remember when. We talked about Ingmar Bergman's film Winterlight, which of course is this, you know, 80-minute Bergman film, very short, uh, incredibly profound. One of my very favorites. It's a 
absolutely remarkable film where uh, Gunnar Bjornstrand plays a Catholic priest at a, at a rural church in Sweden where nobody is really uh, coming to the congregation anymore. The congregations become very small. He finds uh, the few congregants that do remain are coming to him with these these big problems. You know, they're terrified about the possibility of nuclear war. They're unable to grapple with the the, the hideous, you know, violence and, and brutality and injustice of the world. And he finds himself unable to really answer their questions. You know, he gives them the stock kind of Catholic priest answers to the to the questions, but he, he doesn't really believe in them. And there's the final scene, which is one of the most memorable to me in Bergman's entire filmography, where, you know, he, he goes to give the service and there's nobody in the church. And so there's just him performing the liturgy as, you know, the organ plays before a bunch of empty pews. And I mean, you know, this is the kind of uh, silly idea you have when you're a writer and you're trying to build something from scratch, but you think, well, what if there's a metaphor for liberalism in there? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I dropped that. Obviously, that would have been corny. But uh, that was that was uh, that was an idea that I that I toyed around with in, uh, in in how to begin the book. Well, folks, this is a free episode, which means you are going to hear yet again about the Michael and Us Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Michael and Us. You get a whole extra episode every week. The most recent Patreon episode was a listener's choice selection about a little movie you might have heard of called Total Recall. That's right, the Paul Verhoeven, Arnold Schwarzenegger classic. Other recent episodes have included another delve into the Alexandra Pelosi filmography with her film Diary of a Political Tourist, and an episode about the recent Hunter Biden biopic, My Son Hunter. Yes, and we also post additional bonus content on there, uh, conversations that uh, you know we record but that don't really fit into the regular episodes. Uh, we also post interviews there, uh, many of which I do uh, in my day job. All kinds of treats on the Patreon. Now, there are many different ways uh, that you may have found your way to this show. Many five-star ratings from our loyal fans have caused the algorithm to bring you here, perhaps through your podcast app. It's extremely annoying, and we hate doing it. But if you're a listener and uh, you've not rated us on your podcast app of choice, please do that. It really does help uh, people find the show. Some of you listening will have found us uh, via the Jacobin radio feed. We're grateful to be able to partner with Jacobin. If you haven't found us that way, don't miss the other shows on the Jacobin radio network. Uh, On the Jacobin Show recently, my colleague David Broder discussed the history of Italian fascism. On A World to Win, uh, Grace Blakely spoke with Ben Tarnoff. And on Behind the News, host Doug Henwood remembered the late, great Barbara Ehrenreich, uh, who passed away recently. So all kinds of treats on the Jacobin Radio Network. Back to the show. Well, folks, it is time to get to our main subject for this episode. Folks, President Trump, his advisors, and his family had no editorial control over the contents of this discussion. We are talking about the recent documentary, Unprecedented. Okay. Evangelicals for Trump, then I did Indian Americans for Trump, then I did Asian Pacific Americans for Trump, and then... My father, the people's president. The campaign basically was a family operation. We will make liberals cry again! I don't think you want to have the water in the picture, right? As a family, we've done 55 events in 48 hours. Well, I'm washing my hands after giving a bunch of fist bumps, you know? My father, he's very honest, and he is who he is, and, and I think people love that, actually. I love Trump. 
I can't even get a boyfriend because I love him so much. They thought because people showed up to their rallies, that meant they were popular. This is one that you brought to my attention. It's a documentary about the Trump family made with their cooperation, although as the opening text is very quick to note, not with their editorial control. It was filmed after the 2020 election and sort of in the lead up to and after the January 6th riot. You were interested in talking about it. You found it interesting because uh, it, it offers kind of more I hate to say unfiltered because it's not unfiltered, but it offers a little bit more direct access into these people who have been very heavily mediated by the media as well as by their own PR apparatuses. I found this documentary uh, moderately interesting. I found it interesting in comparison to a documentary that we talked about and disagreed about a few weeks ago, Alex's War, which is a a real fly-on-the-wall, studiously non-judgmental documentary about another uh, contentious far-right figure, Alex Jones. And, you know, when we watched the Alex's War documentary, I remember thinking, you know, it's, I wouldn't call it irresponsible, but I found it unenlightening to spend so much time with just this guy talking, this, like, idiot, him talking without any sort of push back without anyone challenging his points. And you thought that, well, the whole point is that nobody's challenging his points. And I guess we, we disagreed to some extent as to how, how useful that was. But this documentary, I think, poses another problem, which is that in between all of the people, all of the footage of Trump and his family talking in interviews, we get all of these talking head interviews with, you know, various professors at Columbia University, various columnists at national magazines, other figures who would probably have blue check marks next to their names. And these interviews are (laughs) just so beyond useless that I think they really hampered my enjoyment of this documentary series. Um, I wrote down a few of these quotes. One of them said, it is not simply reckless. It's beyond dangerous. (laughs) Okay, that's something somebody said. See, it's not simply reckless, and it's not simply dangerous either. It's beyond dangerous, okay? Now, that's that's pretty dangerous. Somebody else says, Trump has always set people against each other, and that's not a way to run a country or a business. Uh, Let me see. Uh, The Columbia prof, in talking about his victory in 2016, said... The polls missed the politics of grievance that he represented. Now, I don't think you really need to be a professor at Columbia to give a pearl (laughs) of wisdom like that. Now, the interviews with the Trump family in this documentary series, I found interesting to a point. I mean, the Trump family, their guards are up. They are very much in campaign mode. They're very much giving, like, you know, there's a limit to how much candor they're going to allow. You know, it was interesting to revel in the artifice a little bit. It was interesting to just revel in their affect, as well as for just little hints and cracks and crevices that emerge in some of the things they say. Would you agree with that? Yeah, very much so. And and I uh, binged all three parts of this quite recently. I mean, I, I think that the quality you're talking about with the talking heads is very funny and I think was made was probably the main thing that made me want to discuss it on this uh, on this show. Um, not that there's really much to say about it, except that it really feels like a second film has been spliced in. Uh, this film was uh, directed by a British filmmaker named Alex Holder, who I believe was actually subpoenaed to testify in the January sixth hearings. So he's been in the news lately. That's right, and uh, yeah, I think the film was developed uh, by by Channel Four in the UK, um, but it aired on CNN. So. Uh, 
I mean, I don't have, you know, the inside scoop here. I don't know what happened, but it very much feels like Alex Holder wanted to make a kind of show don't tell uh, style film. There's a write up in the Columbia Journalism Review, uh, which talks about the film. I just want to read a little bit uh, from from that. In the days after Holder was subpoenaed, Discovery Plus announced that it acquired the rights to his documentary and a first trailer appeared. So I'm pretty sure this aired on CNN, but uh, maybe it also aired on Discovery or I could be getting it wrong. Doesn't matter. Uh, And a first trailer appeared scored with tense string music and showing Trump's children physically sitting down for interviews. It ended with a voice, presumably Holder's, asking Trump if he would talk about January 6th and Trump responding suspensefully, yep. Since then, the network and Holder have dripped out more previews, one of which interspersed footage from the film with clips of recent cable news hype about Holder's subpoena. Another showed Trump sitting down for an interview and spending a minute or so fussing with the placement of a glass of water next to him. I love that scene, incidentally. The latter footage, quote, shows who he is as a person in a quite interesting way, Holder told Politico as well as offering a Rorschach test of sorts. Some viewers would laud Trump's attention to detail, while others would see it as pathetic. Quote, That encompasses the feelings toward him, Holder said. People either love him or they don't. Now, uh, the writer of this this review goes on to say, Whatever Trump's rationale for granting access, the finished film is not a hagiography. In fact, it doesn't really editorialize at all, a reflection of Holder's repeated insistence that viewers should be free to draw their own conclusions. Showing rather than telling can be an effective journalistic approach as long as you show things accurately. Now, I don't fully agree that the film doesn't editorialize because, as you said, uh, you know, most of the movie consists of these, uh, you know, I think, very interesting interviews with Donald Trump himself, but uh, more heavily the Trump children. You know, Don Jr. Uh, features uh, especially prominently. And uh, but as you said, there are these little interjections from yeah, the, you know, our panel of uh, of distinguished Trumpologists who all you know are kind of dispensing <laughs> these pearls of wisdom that are all about on the level of you know this is what Donald Trump does. Every other president has tried to unite. Donald Trump divides. It's like There's I a particularly <laughs> funny one when we see a speech with Don Jr. talking about Joe Biden's, I guess, uh, what he perceives as Joe Biden's cognitive issues. And he says something, he says words to the effect of, stuttering doesn't stop you from confusing your wife with your sister. And then it cuts to Anne Applebaum of The Atlantic magazine saying, in the Trump language, often the cruelty is the point. (laughs) Now, it's bad enough that that little aphorism is about four years out of date. But coming as it does after that clip of Don Jr. um, crudely talking about alleged cognitive issues, it's like actually the cruelty is not the point in this case. You know, saying that Joe Biden has had some kind of mental decline feels like the sort of thing that is taboo to talk about. And that taboo is the point. But Ann Applebaum then saying, uh, no, no, actually, it's about the stuttering. And, and it's about the stuttering because he's mean spirited and he's cruel. You know, that that I think is typical of how not only useless the talking heads are, but but sometimes actively counterproductive in interpreting what the Trump family says. Yeah, I I completely agree. And, uh, you know, I find these interviews with the Trump children interesting, not because I think they provide some sort of, uh, you know, unfiltered portrait, as it were. I mean, obviously, these are very sort of carefully manicured and airbrushed interviews. And uh, many of them were filmed. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about this film is that many of them were filmed kind of in the lead up to the 2020 election. And then a few more were filmed 
filmed after. Uh, the scene with the glass of water, for example, which is just, I mean, it's pure cinema. Donald Trump fidgeting with this little table and a glass of water on it. And then, oh, maybe you could take it away. No, bring it back and we'll put a napkin under the glass of water, you know, because we don't have a coaster. Extremely funny. I don't think you want to have the water in the picture, right? You can take it off. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, put it over there, Nick. Kind of this table as well? Yeah, I well take the table. How are you? Oh, good, very good, thank you. You know what you can do, Nick? Sure. Put the table back, because yes, it's missing something. Put the table back and put the water on the table without the thing on top of it. Okay. How's that look? Extremely funny to watch that, and I'm, I'm very glad that they kept that kind of, uh, you know, B-roll in the movie. But I think that uh, glass of water scene was filmed during Donald Trump's last interview in the White House. So the arc of the interviews and the kind of progression of them is interesting, too. But what I found most interesting about this is that because I'm not a consumer of right wing media, I mean, the easy way to solve this uh, problem I'm about to describe, it would just be to, you know, watch Fox News, watch watch OAN, um, (laughs) you know, which, you know, I I already suffer through enough uh, kind of liberal kitsch. I don't know if I could really handle that, um, maybe in small doses. But because of the type of media that someone like me inevitably ends up uh, mostly consuming, you know, the kind of world of MAGA as, you know, MAGA understands itself is still a little bit alien to me. I mean, we did that documentary. I don't remember the name of the film. It wasn't even really much of a film to begin with. But a few months ago, the episode was called Trust the Plan, where it was that documentary about Donald Trump that was mostly just footage of Donald Trump. And I remember saying to you at the time that one of the things I found so interesting about that was that, you know, I'm really not used to seeing Donald Trump in that way. I'm used to seeing him, as you do in this film, uh, in parts anyway, with, you know, a bunch of people chiming in afterwards to make, to to curate your response to what you've just seen, to make sure that you're having uh, an appropriately (laughs) disgusted response and that you're on, you you need to understand that what you just heard was really cruel and also that the cruelty is the point, etc. So, you know, <laughs> while those talking heads, uh, well, you know, while that does happen throughout this movie, it's kind of so artificial and it doesn't really, I mean, it really, it, it feels like uh, it might have even been added in after. I'm not sure. But it's out of sync with the rest of the spirit of the movie. And what I like about the rest of the movie, what I enjoyed about it, was the opportunity to see the MAGA agitprop and the Trump family agitprop kind of relatively unfiltered. And in particular, because you are uh, you get to spend so much time with the Trump children, you get to see the division of labor among them and the sort of different segments of the Republican base that they are communicating with. Ivanka, you know, is very much the one who is, uh, I think, tasked with making the Trump project more acceptable to, you know, the kinds of people that someone like her knows or is, or is likely to know, you know, people who are, you know, fairly affluent, who, you know, may be sort Sort of uh, East Coast, you know, New York Democrats, you know, that kind of person. But she's there to kind of uh, present a much more respectable face to it. You know, people remember her speech at the 2016 RNC. That was very much the thrust of it. You know, it was all about what a great, what a great dad Donald is and that kind of thing. And Trump Jr. is, uh, who is just the, <laughs> I mean, one of the most like despicable little worms on the planet. I mean, he just, his whole shtick is so unconvincing, but 
uh, I mean, again, that's one of the things that's interesting about this movie is you get to see him go out and, and rev up the, the crowds. Uh, these these kind of braying hordes of like, in many cases, much older Fox News viewers who are basically getting to go see a, a special museum exhibit in the form of Donald Trump Jr., where, you know, they understand that, you know, he represents the younger generation. Conservatism is cool now. Um, and so, you know, he gets up on the stage and just throws, you know, red meat at them constantly. And, uh, you know, he's obviously doing that on, on purpose. And I don't think the, sh- I mean, I think the shtick is embarrassing, but it's very funny to see uh, so much footage of it, which again, you know, I'm not used to seeing in as unfiltered a way as this. I'm curious if you felt that you learned anything new about any of the Trumps personally or on any level that wasn't a sort of broader sociological sense. I will say that I thought some of the stuff of them talking about the family and how they grew up and what their sort of interpersonal dynamics are, I'm not necessarily sure if I learned, but I think it posed some interesting possibilities. You know, the kids keep insisting that, you know, he was a workaholic, but he also spent a lot of time with them. And they keep insisting that, you know, no matter who is in the room, maybe it was the Japanese prime minister, maybe it was the head of some enormous company, but uh, he would always take calls from the kids. And they also say, and this is the part that I find the easiest to believe, they keep saying that from a very, very early age, he was very insistent on saying to them, no drink, no drugs, no cigarettes. He was very adamant that the kids not do anything like that. Oh, and they also they also seem pretty united on the idea that Ivanka uh, was the favorite child. You know, there's a, there's a kind of amusing clip they show of Don Jr. interviewing the old man, and he says something like, who's your favorite Trump child and why is it Ivanka? And Trump sort of laughs and said, uh, we got a wiseacre here, you know. I mean, most of those things that I just said seem like they kind of have the ring of truth to them. I mean, everyone acknowledges that Trump was a workaholic growing up and that maybe there were limits to the amount of access that he would give, but they all seem to indicate that they were basically like happy with him as a dad. And I guess the strangest possibility that this series raised for me is the possibility that maybe he actually does love his kids and maybe they actually do love him back. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why that should seem so strange to me, but it's it's something I never considered possible. Well, I have I have absolutely no idea about about that, and I mean I I think it's impenetrable to us. I mean I don't think we'll ever know. And this it's it's kind of like asking what the relationship between you know different members of the Clinton family really is. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think we know beyond what we see in a film like this, which is that fundamentally this family, like other political families like it, is a firm first and foremost. You know, it is very much as, uh, I guess you haven't watched it, but uh, as the TV show Succession shows us with the Roy family, I mean, it's, it's a firm. I would not be surprised if some of the stuff that you see in uh, in Succession, you know, actually happens at Trump family gatherings as well, you know, or on the floor for those who've seen the show. Now, I did want to talk a little bit more about Don Jr. because he talks in this uh, in this film about uh, you know how he had a, he had a few months to spare, so he decided to write a write a book, and it, it did pretty well. Now, this is the book uh, Triggered: How the Left Thrives on Hate and Wants to Silence Us. I gotta say, I mean, I guess I was busy when this book came out. Uh, I kind of wish I'd sat down and, and written a review of it. Well, it's not too late to read if you want to. 
<laughs> well, I'm going to come to that in a second. But what I was going to say is, you know, I feel that I've done due diligence on a lot of really crappy sort of liberal books and memoirs, but it really has been a dereliction of duty on my part not to do the same with their sort of equivalent books on the right. I mean, uh, Jared Kushner's stupid book got that really amusing write-up in the New York Times, a really incredible takedown. And I was reading that recently and thought, God, I, I wish I'd uh, written this. And same is true of uh, of Don Jr. But just more, I guess, on uh, on your question from before, something else that I thought was, uh, you know, if not surprising, perhaps just illustrated in an interesting way, was how you can see uh, in many of the scenes in this movie that the sort of Trump uh, family traveling roadshow, you know, particularly Don Jr., but the others as well, um, you can see how uh, how separate they're kind of kept from the people that they're addressing, you know, and, and when they are talking to crowds, they actually seem pretty ill at ease. Like, they're actually sort of scared of their own, uh, you know, supporters. And I think that comes through in the body language and in a whole bunch of uh, different scenes. Something else uh, that, that really struck me in seeing these kind of MAGA crowds come out for, you know, Ivanka, Don Jr., etc., is really how uh, much these crowds just reminded me of crowds I've seen around uh, Republican figures my entire adult life, really. I mean, it's not an original point to make on this show, but the constant insistence that there is some, you know, radical break that Trumpism represents from earlier phases of Republicanism, big R Republicanism, that has just never seemed plausible to me. I, I'm perfectly willing to grant that there are, you know, there are differences of, of emphasis. There are things that are more extreme. You know, some of the dials are turned up uh, higher, that kind of thing with Trumpism. But I mean, you know, Don Jr. Uh, is basically going out and he's doing uh, the shtick for these crowds that he does at CPAC. I mean, this just, this is the same kind of astroturf, fake conservative populism, all of it subsidized by big donors and, you know, the kind of vast apparatus that calls itself the conservative movement, but is really a kind of astroturf turfed outfit. And um, in mentioning that, I want to turn back to Triggered, How the Left Thrives on Hate and Wants to Silence Us, which, uh, believe it or not, made the New York Times bestseller list. Now, there's a story uh, as to how that happened, which is a story behind a lot of books uh, on the New York Times bestseller list, or I should say a lot of right-wing books, especially. People may uh, sometimes glance at it and think, oh, wow, how's that book by, you know, Dinesh D'Souza? You know, why is that so high up on the list? Alex Jones, I think, has a best-selling book um, fairly recently. And it's not to say that people don't buy these books organically. But there's a particular thing that happens, which is uh, the actual reason, in many cases, why these things make it onto the bestseller list. So... Don Jr.'s book, Triggered, was bought in bulk by nine different uh, Republican-affiliated organizations. A bunch of candidates bought it. The RNC itself uh, bought a whole bunch of copies. You know, $75,000, the uh, NRCC. The RNC spent $100,000 on the books. Uh, Turning Point USA bought 2,000 books. And the Republican Senatorial Committee bought about 2,500 books. So you don't have to buy that many books in bulk. If they sell all at once, you can go right up the best seller list. So this is a thoroughly astroturfed book through and through. It's a book that really just exists to be kind of issued to people who turn out for the CPAC conference and things like that. Uh, it's hard to believe that there are that many people who've actually read it. It's more of a right-wing fetish item than it is, you know, a, a piece of right-wing literature. But when Don Jr. went to, I believe it was the CPAC conference to to launch the book and do uh, some shtick on it uh, with Charlie Kirk and, and uh, another interview 
interviewer. The event uh, descended into madness pretty quickly with hectors and booing, and uh, people weren't allowed to ask questions, which I guess made them annoyed as well. So what you just saw there was the author of Triggered walking off the stage at his own book event because of hecklers. That was not a bunch of angry liberals, mind you. No, the event was supposed to have been a safe space for Don Jr. That circus was a result of rival factions of MAGA people beefing over who has more alt-right street cred or something and whether they could ask questions, which they couldn't. Whatever it was, it ruined what should have been a lovely night of book club. You're not making your parents proud by being rude and disruptive and discourteous. We are happy to answer a question. Respect the people around you so that they can hear. I bet you engage and go on online dating because you're impressing no one here to get a date in person. How many people have you catfished? Look, I know it's a cliche uh, to point out political hypocrisy, but I mean, for God's sake, the whole point of a guy like Don Jr., you know, his whole shtick is about how everyone outside of uh, the magosphere is, you know, a snowflake and, you know, they no one can get along with one another. Everyone's canceling each other and tattling all the time. And like, and you just see this shtick like unravel in the span of a few seconds as he's trying to launch this uh, this stupid book at this stupid event. Now, we've talked around the book a lot. And I mean, I did actually, bring an excerpt with me to uh, to read. I could not find the author himself reading it, but I did just want to give people a sense of, you know, the flavor of what uh, Don Jr.'s sentences, or sentences with his name affixed to them anyway, what it reads like. Now, I think this is how the book begins. Uh, it begins in all caps with the words, I'm not mad. Chapter one is called Trigger Warning. Look, everyone is called a traitor once or twice in their lives, right? Everybody gets falsely accused and wrongly investigated by the FBI and has to testify in front of Congress for over 30 hours, answering the same stupidly politically motivated questions over and over again, don't they? And everybody has an army of social justice warriors combing through their every word they've ever said online to find something to be offended by, correct? Why should I be mad? I'm not mad. In fact, my plan was to write a feel-good book about forgiveness and healing, sort of a chicken soup for the political soul type of story. I was even going to call it Kumbaya instead of Triggered, but it seemed that the title was already taken, probably by one of the 2,467 Democratic candidates currently running for president. So instead of Chicken Soup, over the next 300 pages or so, I'll take you on a tour of all the craziest, most destructive ideas that the left has come up with in the last decade or so. Think of it as a trip through Jurassic Park, only instead of dangerous dinosaurs, you get to see sleepy liberal losers, socialist crybabies, and hypocrites critical politicians and media. If you decide to come along, I promise that nothing will jump into the car along with us. I'm proud to say that Luke has invited me to read a little bit more of this uh, golden prose, so here I go. You'll also get to find out a little about me during the ride, if only as a way to dispel the conspiracy theory on the left that I was born with horns. Before we get going, however, I need to make a few disclaimers. 
If you've been around lawyers as much as I have lately, you begin to think like them. First, I am not operating in my official capacity as a spokesman for my father's campaign in these pages. So if I were to say something like, oh, I don't know, Adam Schiff is a lying-ass clown, or Robert Mueller is a feeble old fool who got used by the Democrats, you know, if I were to hypothetically say those things, that's all just my opinion. No one on the campaign has been consulted, and I doubt any of them would care very much anyway. I'm just saying what they all know to be true, but don't want to take the heat for saying in public. I guess that's just one of those things that got passed down in the genes. Second, as much as I might joke around, I am not actively trying to offend anyone with what I'm about to say. I'm just making arguments, backing them up with facts, and putting them out into the world, the same way millions of people have done with millions of books before mine. I would actually like to think of this book as offering a reasoned antidote to all the hysterical bullshit that's flying around right now. That used to be called discourse, but today discourse exists only for leftists. When conservatives do it, they call it hate speech. I also know that as the son of a rich white guy living in 2019, I'm essentially not allowed to have an opinion anymore, let alone express that opinion in public. Now, I know this is tiresome, but uh, I just want to read a little bit more. Finally, I guess I should probably include a note about the title of my book, because it's probably not a term you hear every day. In fact, yeah, it's probably not a term uh, you hear every day if you're an 80-year-old OAN viewer who uh, who's probably one of the only people who organically bought this book. In fact, if you're over the age of about 35 or you haven't spent the last few years on a college campus, on Twitter, or in an asylum, and really, who can tell the difference anymore, you probably have no idea idea why this book is called Triggered. Allow me to explain. Today, as it appears on the internet at least, the term trigger warning is used to describe something, say a tweet from my dad, that blows up the fragile sensibilities of the liberal Twitterverse. At the very least, it sets their hair on fire and creates a minor news story for a few days. But at the worst, it moves them to real-life outrage and organized violence. And before you ask, the freaking out is wildly disproportionate. While conservatives usually get worked up over important things, such as the killing of babies or the stripping away of our natural rights as human beings, with liberals, the triggers tend to be much sillier. If you say that capitalism is better than socialism, they freak out. If my father says America is the greatest country in the world, they lose it. If you tell them the cat video they posted isn't that cute, they'll have a complete break. Breakdown. Now, I think we'll stop reading there because it just goes on and on and on and on and on. You don't analyze such sunlit perfection. You just bask in its warmth <laughs> and splendor. Well, I want to say two things about this. The first is, I mean, you know, kudos to whichever, you know, down market conservative wordsmith was like pulled from an orifice somewhere at CPAC in order to uh, to ghostwrite this. Because, I mean, uh, these are prose that, uh, I mean, every sentence looks like it's the first time the sentence has been attempted. And then you just move on to the next one like you know I, I imagine this just being typed out on a big long scroll with you know you know no editing or, or anything else i mean it could have been written in a few days uh this book and you know not a bad way to make a hundred grand or you know uh w- whatever they were paid uh that's the first thing secondly how can this possibly sustain itself over the course of an entire book? I mean, I'm almost tempted to find this at my local bookstore and just like flip to the end and see what it's like by about page 150. I mean, it's it's incredible. But I guess the only uh, remotely serious point I want to bring up in relation to it is just that to bring things back to the film, I mean, to me, uh, you know, something like that is just pure like 
CPAC conference. You know, this is the mainstream of, you know, what calls itself the conservative movement in a big way. This is the same, you know, yeah, fakely populist, uh, professionalized uh, machine conservatism that I feel like, uh, you know, we've known since the Tea Party and since uh, before that as well. I don't think that this, you know, extremely worn and pitiably stupid shtick that runs through uh, what we just read, I don't really see how that is qualitatively different from the kind of stuff that was being, you know, adapted by Republican politicians in the 90s or the 2000s from the likes of Rush Limbaugh and those quote-unquote more populist parts of uh, American conservatism. I mean, there's been an evolution here. There's, you know, it's it's the 21st century. So with Don Jr., you know, he complains a lot about being sort of shadow banned and, you know, like, censored you know his posts are getting censored and that kind of shit those are the kinds of things that appeal to the very small number of people under 35 who this kind of uh, shtick appeals to but i don't really see a lot that's new about it and i think that uh for me there was a certain uh demystification or i guess re-demystification of trumpism in watching this film i mean i'm not saying any of this to say that trumpism isn't sinister obviously i think we can take that for granted republicanism is sinister the american right is sinister and it always has been but i thought that what the trump children were trying to do uh throughout this movie what we see them do in the in the interviews and what we see them do kind of on the road campaigning for their father is much closer to uh the kind of republicanism that we've uh, known for a long time and so that made it all the more funny to have all these you know talking heads these distinguished trumpologists come in again and again to to chaperone us into the revelation that what we're seeing is in fact bad and that it represents a, a very dangerous and unprecedented break with the past earlier in the episode i compared this series to the alex jones documentary uh, I would say, just in conclusion, that I found this series generally more worthwhile and enlightening than the Alex Jones documentary, uh, maybe just because the Trump family is a more consequential group of people than Alex Jones, and maybe also because there's more to demystify with them, just by virtue of the fact that, you know, Trump was the president of the United States, and he was and is somebody with an enormous PR apparatus around him in a way that Alex Jones isn't. Um, I, I will say say that the talking heads were very bad in this, just as I found the lack of any context in the Alex Jones documentary a little difficult. And I think just as always, um, I would propose a third way. Uh, I believe a third way is possible. (laughs) Well, something some people may not know is that Don Jr. has now uh, published a second book, which is called Liberal Privilege, Joe Biden, the Democrats' Defense of the Indefensible. Now, apparently, this book was also bought in bulk by the RNC, uh, which shelled out over $300,000 to something called Pursuit Venture LLC, uh, a company owned by Trump Jr. for donor mementos. It was the most money the RNC has ever paid for this purpose. The hardcover retails for $29.99, which suggests roughly how many copies might have been purchased, and the RNC's intent was to give a copy to people who donated fifty to hundred dollars. So again, just giving you a just giving you a sense of how the right wing literary circuit works. Um, and since you asked me about my book off the top, I just want to say it really is a tragedy that I can't get like Big Socialism LLC to, to do the same with my book. Maybe one day. It matters not to you how people suffer, and should they you consider that a gain? a lot of trouble to the town and then you leave that's part of your communistic game i detect a little communism i can see it in the things you do 
Communism, socialism, call it what you like There's very little difference in the two Now ain't I right? Your followers sometimes have been a bearded, bathless bunch There's even been a minister or two A priest, a nun, a rabbi, and an educated man Have listened and been taken in by you All the country's full of two-faced politicians Who encourage you with words that go like this Burn your draft card if you like, it's good to disagree That's a get-acquainted communistic kiss Now ain't I right? 